Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and supported by our Patreon community. Here's episode seven. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist, I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. You know, I mean, really, seriously, where do ideas come from, you know? You're just given. You do anything. You know, it's not. It's music theory, not fact. You know, kind of like lawyers and doctors still practicing. They ain't got it down yet, you know. But uh, it's music theory, not music fact. And there are no rules. I never learned how to read music. Um, maybe that's why I'm so twisted and unorthodox. Thank you. 
Episode 7, Moods and Modes. I'm Alex Skolnick. Today we're paying tribute to the memory of one who many of us, myself included, consider to be one of the greatest players of all time. A good argument could be made for him being the greatest. And he was more than a guitarist. Multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, home electronics enthusiast, forever changing the landscape. This episode got delayed for a few reasons I'll get into. The main one being it was just difficult to begin on a personal level. I didn't know Ed, but like many, it feels like I did. His playing is a part of me, perhaps more than any other guitarist. Some friends at school said, oh, you play guitar, you have to hear Van Halen. I'm far from the only person that has this story, but hearing Eruption. When Eruption played, <laughs> it got to the second track on the first Van Halen record. And this had been out. Already. They were already like on their fourth record. Sure, so sure. So I'm, Very I'm discovering them for the first time, but mm -hmm. I'm like old enough to appreciate it. Sure. I suddenly knew what kind of guitarist I wanted to be. <laughs> That's obviously yours truly. The other voice you hear is Andre Cholmondley. Andre is a guitar technician, also keyboard technician for such artists as Yes, Adrian Ballou, Al Demiola, the late Greg Lake, and others. He's recently started an internet show. I'll give you all the info at the end of this episode. And uh, earlier I'd been explaining that... I'd been a fan of Kiss, The Beatles, Chuck Berry, The Blues Brothers, but I didn't know what kind of guitarist I wanted to be until I heard Eddie Van Halen. I'm not doing early rock and roll. I'm not going to be a singer, songwriter necessarily. Like my main focus, I'm going to play hard rock and roll, and I want to be a lead guitarist. Right. And it was entirely because of Eddie Van Halen. And Eddie was one of the few people that I've always gone back to this whole time. Wow. Like never outgrew the music, uh, always kept as, as like a benchmark. You know, what would Eddie do right here? Wow. And there's so few people you can say that about. You could say that again, or rather, I could say that again. It's so hard to know where to begin when talking about Eddie Van Halen. So much has been said already. There have been so many tributes, not just in music outlets, but mainstream publications. And while it's been a huge honor to be among those asked to help pay tribute to Eddie, I have to say it's been a little overwhelming. It's included not only being available for interviews, but providing quotes, penning essays, publications I'm familiar with, like Guitar Player and Metal Hammer, outlets I don't talk to that often, such as NBC News, being a guest DJ on Sirius XM. And uh, several shows that you might be less familiar with, such as Andre's. So I figure as long as so much of what I have to say has been put out there recently, it makes sense to cull from some of these different appearances. Anytime I go on someone else's podcast or YouTube show or whatever, all I ask is for the option to share some of the content on moods and modes. And I realize a lot of this material that's happened in tribute to Eddie Van Halen will be very useful for this episode. Now, there's no way to do a Van Halen tribute and limit it to just one episode. This will definitely be a two-parter. To be honest, I could imagine half a dozen or more episodes, even if it was just me alone with a guitar. However, it's not just me. We have some other voices here to help me pay tribute to Eddie. So I think what we'll do is we'll make this an official two-parter, but we'll be revisiting Eddie from time to time because he's far too important to limit our content. Now, ironically, one of the main points I'd hoped to make and even begin with was that there is so much more to Eddie Van Halen than eruption. 
Now, as I imagine most of you know, Eruption is the open solo on Van Halen's debut album. It is the second track on the album, which is unheard of for a major label release, let alone for a major label debut by a vocal band that's aiming for rotation on rock radio stations. Even more unheard of was the two-handed tapping technique used in the solo's climax, in which the guitar didn't sound like a guitar, it sounded more like a keyboard. Now, while Eddie wasn't the first to use two-handed tapping, he was the first to do so in such a way, with such energy, with such a unique sound, with such a directness and an accessibility that would literally change the world. And for non-guitarists, if you just picture the way a guitar is normally played, one hand is over the body, picking or plucking, the other hand is over the neck, fretting. Well, Eddie made both hands the fretting hand, two hands on the neck, which could have been a gimmick, except it was a true means for musical expression and wondrous creative ideas. So this technique highlighted an eruption, but found in several Van Halen songs, got so much attention. You could arguably say that Eddie Van Halen got overshadowed by Eddie Van Halen. What do I mean by that? Well, this two-handed tapping technique that was featured in Eruption, but also found in various other Van Halen songs, became such a focus of attention that it took away from some of the other innovations that were every bit as groundbreaking as this technique. Now, even if you took away that two-handed tapping lick, you would have a unique way of approaching bends. You would have Eddie's use of patterns that no other musician I know of has used. You would have this incredible sense of swing and groove with a depth that was the inverse of what you might say is the shallowness of David Lee Roth's lyrics. Uh, He reinvented guitar design. He reinvented amp tone, um, the way riffs are played. I mean, we could go on and on, and we're going to get into a lot of this stuff. But for all the reasons above, I did not want to start with Eruption. But thinking about it now, we have to face the fact. The story I told in the very beginning is a story told by countless guitar players. We heard that lick. Well, we heard the whole solo, but especially that part that just felt like magic. And that's what drew us in and enabled us to discover all these other wonderful qualities of Eddie Van Halen. Now, I recall a quote in one of the guitar magazines, and I believe Eddie was being interviewed by Dweezil Zappa. And the quote was, and I'm paraphrasing, But it was something to the effect of, I'm afraid I've influenced a whole lot of people who missed my point, unquote. Now, I think what he was referring to was the focus on his technique and people overlooking the fact that the technique was just one component of this big picture of pursuing a vision that was not limited to that lick. It had, there was so much more to it. I, it was beyond solos. It was in the riffs. It was in the songs. It was in the tone. It was a relentless pursuit of an artistic vision. 
It wasn't just limited to guitar technique. It wasn't just limited to guitar. Listen to what he played on keyboard. Listen to what he played on piano. Listen to that piano piece that was playing earlier. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's one of the only pieces I could find that really captured the mood of what I felt after I heard he passed away. And that's no disrespect to the music of Van Halen, the band. It's just that so much of it is so fun. That's what we love about it. It was synonymous with Eddie's huge grin, which was so genuine. You can't fake that. And that quality, that authenticity, that realness was there in everything he did. Now, admittedly, sometimes this led to trouble. It was always great for the music, but sometimes that realness, that inability to mask what he was really feeling could cause problems. There is no shortage of uncomfortable interviews, regrettable statements, autobiographies by former band members, but we're not going to dwell too much on any of that. Yes, Eddie kept it very real. It was incredibly effective in his music. It was sometimes problematic in his life. But the one thing you can never accuse him of, which is not true of everybody in the music business, especially in the Southern California region, sorry, L.A., you could never accuse Eddie of putting up a false front or ever being guilty of bullshit. So, let's uh, get started. Thanks so much for coming. I'm Aaron Friedman um, from Make Music New York. And uh, this is Make Music Monthly, our series here at the Cornelia Street Cafe, where once a month we bring in a musical authority to talk about the uh, music of their expertise. May 21st, 2014. This was a monthly cultural event in Greenwich Village and a Cornelia Street Cafe, known for great salads, but also hosting an intimate venue downstairs. This venue was among the most beloved for improvised music in New York City, and sadly it's no longer around, a victim of the changing neighborhood discussed in episode one, which focused on Matt Umanov's guitar shop, which was located just around the corner. Now, you'll have to forgive the sound quality in places, but the main parts sound good. And this was a monthly series hosted by Aaron Friedman of Make Music New York, which usually focused on classical or world or jazz music, in which he'd invite an instrumentalist down. And in front of a live audience, there would be a recording for their podcast consisting of an interview and demonstration, usually focused on a historic piece of music. On this day, they decided to spice things up a bit, and the historic piece of music was none other than Eddie Van Halen's Eruption. You're going to hear Eruption played live. Now, obviously, Eddie Van Halen wasn't available for this, so it's not him, but I assure you the person playing is doing their best. And then he came to New York to study at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music and to uh, start a, a parallel career as a, as a jazz musician. So uh, it's a really interesting uh, perspective on heavy metal and, and music in general, and we're really honored to have him with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Alex Skolnick. Yeah. 
a tiny little practice amp. The venue is a little too intimate for me to show up with a Marshall stack. The volume's so low, you can actually hear the pick hitting the strings. Okay, I got through it. There were a couple screw-ups, especially towards the end. But in my defense, I was really going for the studio version of it. And I don't think I've ever heard Eddie play it that way. He's always changed it up a little bit. And that's part of the beauty of it. Every time he played it, it was great. And it maintained this freshness and this spirit of improvisation because it wasn't exactly the same every time. Now, this whole interview could fill an entire episode, so there's too much to share here. However, some of the information I cannot imagine expressing any better. So let's hear a few minutes now of my 2014 interview on Eddie Van Halen in front of a live audience at Cornelia Street Cafe for Make Music Monthly. Well, do you want to take us through what, what's actually going on in that? Yeah, what is going on? Yeah. All right. Well, first, keep in mind, this came out in 1978. Uh, I didn't hear it till 81 or 82. They were already on their third or fourth record by that point. But when I heard that sound, you know, there was nothing like that. It's, it's pretty astounding, like, the level of not, not just the technical facility, but uh, compositionally. It's a, it's a really great piece. And I think that often gets overlooked. Okay, let, let's just cut right to the finale. I'll call it that. You know, the third section. This is the part everybody focused on was this thing here. Right. So um, to my knowledge, nobody had done that on guitar. Or if they had, they hadn't done it in a way that was accessible. And part of this great package with this great band but you could even if you take that away the other stuff he's doing we was pretty revolutionary 
And even to this day, approaching it years later with lots of playing experience, I'll look at some of these patterns and the note choices, and I'll just say, how, how did he think of this? I think part of it is just, a, you know, he was an obsessive person, and he was able to chase the sound he was hearing. He took the sound further than anybody else. He made it crunchier. Like, he basically took what um, Black Sabbath was doing as, as just one example of the sound, right? Uh, Black Sabbath used, well, Tony Iommi, Black Sabbath's guitarist, played Gibson SGs, right? So the Gibson SG had a humbucker, right? That's the, um, if you look at any guitar where there are you know, two layers of the pickup, Les Pauls had that, uh, Gibson SGs had that. Stratocasters did not have that. Um, yet strats are a lot easier to play. So what Van Halen does is he takes a Stratocaster, um, carves it up, put jams this double coil pickup, you know, like so he takes a Stratocaster uh, body, but he, he gets a Les Paul type tone from it because of the pickup. So what he, not, he not only came up with all these um, techniques, but he really uh, revolutionized technology. Um, so, so getting back to the solo, the third section that you mentioned that was sort of the, the tapping section, I guess, was, was that something that wouldn't have been possible on a different instrument? I think it would have been possible, but he made it sound so unique. He, he created the right sound for it. So part of that was by um, taking a guitar and just demolishing it and putting this, this pickup in it getting more distortion than anybody I know of at that time had, had ever gotten. And you can really hear the feedback. I mean, the feedback is all over the record, too. I can't really demonstrate that because the, these amps aren't exactly giant <laughs> Marshall. You know, he's, he was using uh, Marshalls, gi giant Marshall stacks, which are designed for large theaters and arenas. I'm told he was able to um, increase the voltage of his amplifiers, and he would go through amplifiers like create like every few days he would bring his amp in for repair. So so he's frying amps. I'm just gonna jump in here. This is true. Eddie would go through amps like crazy, and these are Marshall amps. They weren't designed to handle his level of overdrive back then and he did a true mad scientist thing he found out that you could take a variac that's a voltage regulator and increase the voltage you would melt down essential components of the amp but you got a great sound while doing it he's using these pedals so i, I have one pedal here that's called a uh, phase 90 i'll just uh, play a little bit of so this is a no the normal sound, right? And then I hit this button, phase 90, and I get... All right, so it's just extra thing going on. The sonic thing. I, th I used a wah at the time, I believe. I mean, there's a lot of debates about exactly what he used, used and didn't. But I find when I play it, and I have this going at the same time, right, it starts to really sound like it. So it helps to have that extra frequency and this sort of oscillating in the background. 
So he had this crazy guitar. He had this unusual setup. He had these, these amplifiers that were basically blowing up. But he did whatever he could to get his sound. And it, it'll, in many ways, heavy metal, uh, all the heavy metal that followed was built off of that sound. So um, you mentioned that the third part of the solo was the one that everyone sort of talks about. Yes. Well, I also think it, people talk about it too much. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's groundbreaking. But I think it's unfortunately overshadowed the rest of the solo. Well, then let's start at the beginning of the solo. Okay, yeah. What's sure. the first thing? I okay. So right there, I begin a play-by-play walkthrough of the eruption solo. It goes on for a bit. And I think it's going to make more sense to include that in part two because it connects with some other licks that I want to talk about. And there's so much content to share here. If you can't wait and you want to hear that now, you can do so by going to soundcloud.com and do a search for Make Music New York or Make Music Monthly and enter my name, Alex Skolnick, and it'll come up episode five. Now, just a few more thoughts about Eruption. It is a really challenging piece of music. In fact, in the interview, I go on to compare it to certain monumental pieces from the classical world that are considered among the most technically challenging and especially scary to instrumentalists. One example might be a Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, which was partially written to feature what was then a new instrument at the time, the harpsichord. And there's an unaccompanied harpsichord solo that is just incredible. Or uh, the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto, um, number three, known as the, the Rock Three, which is featured in uh, the movie Shine. For violinists, it might be Paganini's 24th Caprice. You know, there's many other examples of these, but I think for guitar players, the ultimate example is the studio version of Eruption. And it's no coincidence that Eddie and his brother Alex, Van Halen's drummer, were both trained as classical pianists. And you can definitely hear a classical piano quality in that finale involving the two-handed tapping. In fact, it must have been that training which partially inspired him to uh, seek that approach. But there's also a classical quote in the song. Now, I first heard this in a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes, one of these one-off ones without the regular characters. Jack Benny is played by a mouse. It's called The Mouse That Jack Built, and he's practicing violin. Now, this is by Kreutzer, who you probably wouldn't know unless you play violin. Beethoven did a piece based on one of his melodies, but he's best known for his violin studies. So there is this whole classical component to it, not just in the violin quote, but in the fact that the uh, finale of Eruption really has a lot in common with classical piano. And that's not surprising because uh, Eddie studied classical piano, at the insistence of his parents, and along with his brother, Alex. Alex, by the way, in addition to having a very cool name, deserves much more credit for his drumming. Alex Van Halen's drums are the foundation which Eddie Van Halen's guitar is built upon. And if you listen to songs that start out with just the drums, such as uh, Intruder, or the much better known Hot for Teacher, It's hard to sit still. How could Alex Van Halen be so overlooked as a great drummer? 
Well, it doesn't help when you have a singer who is a type A personality multiplied, not to mention a brother who plays guitar in such a way that alters the course of music history. I'm sure, I'm sure. Hey! <laughs> What's up, man? A little Annie. Awesome. I knew he would show yeah. up. A little a little surprise. Like a bad luck bear. Here we are. What's up, bro? <laughs> Let me explain what's going on here. We're back to that same conversation you heard earlier in the episode. What I didn't mention was it wasn't just me on this call with Andre, the guitar tech, who's also a fine player, by the way, plays for a Zappa tribute band, Project Object. He had gathered several of us on this Zoom call, including myself and uh, Matt Ferguson, who is a product representative. He's been with Fender and Gibson, currently with Yamaha and Line 6, and New Eddie personally. Also, uh, Alan Gawa, who is a North Jersey guitarist, educator, who was a guitar consultant for the company Kramer that was based in New Jersey in the 1980s. Kramer was Eddie Van Halen's first brand affiliation. Now, Eddie was notorious for changing brands. He jumped around quite a bit after Kramer, finally ending up at Fender, who gave him his own line, the current brand EVH. And also um, our next generation representative, uh, Courtney Cox, who was born close to 1990 and plays guitar in the very cool all-female Iron Maiden tribute group, the Iron Maidens. And then finally, our surprise guest. He wasn't announced because his schedule was unclear whether he'd be able to make it, but he showed up. And uh, he was somebody I was planning to get for this episode anyway. So this worked out perfectly. We've already talked about doing a future episode together of Moods and Modes. So that's only a matter of time until it happens. And I'm talking about the one, the only Mr. Vernon Reed of Living Color. Like all of us, this man is so damn busy and I'm so happy. Nice background, Alexander. Oh, thank you. It's real. <laughs> it's not a screensaver. <laughs> He's talking about the row of guitars in the rack and the guitars on my wall, which you've seen if you've viewed any of my videos from home, including quarantine videos, IG Live, solo performances, etc. Now, you'll have to forgive the audio quality Vernon Sound on the Zoom conferencing platform, at least on this particular night, unfortunately, does not quite measure up to the fantastic sound he's associated with when playing guitar. So after some brief catching up, talk of life on Staten Island, where he lives, discussion of the pandemic, we get down to business discussing Mr. Eddie Van Halen. When the word came down about EVH, I thought about the first person, some of the first people I would have talked to, or, or, you know, and I, and I, and I, you know, it was such a heartrending thing. Like Alex, I was, you was one of the first people I called. I just, yeah, that was so great to get that call. You know what I mean? And I was like, I just spontaneously, I called, I called Steve, I called you, I called you, I called you first. I called Steve Vai. I called Mm -hmm. a number of people. Yeah, as soon as it was announced, I started getting text messages, and then the phone rings, and it's Vernon Reed. 
he's ridiculously busy. I'm ridiculously busy. When we do connect, it's usually via message first. So I knew something was going on, and uh, that was how I knew it was real, and it was good to talk to him. I called mm-hmm. a number of people just to just to connect, and one of the first people I would have called would have been Ronnie Drake. You man. Know? And, and this year... 2020. You know what I mean? Oh, man. And, Ronnie. And, and really, uh, like early March, man, I mean, it just... It's so brutal to think about the people, certain people I would have connected to that were taken from He's it. referring to Ronald Drayton, who unfortunately passed away this year, a great guitarist from Queens, New York, um, associated with R&B acts like the Persuaders and the Chamber Brothers, also um, Nona Hendrix, uh, Michelle and Cello. And it just underscores Eddie's influence going so far beyond the commercial hard rock genre that Van Halen was associated with after he passed away. Quincy Jones, Sheila E., um, Pat Metheny, like so many artists from so many genres, just defying categorization, all coming out, paying tribute to Eddie. And sadly, Ronnie was one of these people that would have been on Vernon's call list. 2020's just had incredible losses. Back to Eddie. He made it look, not just he made it look fun. That's it. We were, and it was so real. So that's the he, word. You he know, couldn't we, phone it in. We, you couldn't, you couldn't. Right. You a lot know, of us I miss mean, the fun sometimes, but he always had it. You know, exactly. Everyone took it too seriously. That's the thing. And it was deadly serious. I mean, you couldn't yeah. figure this shit out, but there was so much joy. Yeah. So that's a great place to, to, to start on that. Um, tell me a little bit, because uh, we were just starting to talk about the, the, the kind of the, the harmonic thing that he did, because obviously he was a big fan of Clapton, we knew that, and he was a big fan of Holdsworth. And I was, yeah, and I, uh, uh, I was saying to Matt the other day, and this is for anyone out there, go and pull up on YouTube, punch in Tony Williams' Lifetime with Holdsworth. Oh, yeah. Believe, yeah. Believe it. And, and well, there's the album, but please find the live stuff because when you oh, hear them please. live, it sounds a little bit like Van Halen. Oh, yeah. They saw them. Okay, I'm going to jump in for a moment. This brings a bunch of stuff to mind. I can recall being very confused reading interviews with Eddie Van Halen, the old interviews, because he spoke about Eric Clapton like that was his main influence, and he just went from playing Eric Clapton to how he sounded. And I always wondered, how is that possible? He sounds nothing like Clapton. (laughs) Well, I think it can be explained a few ways. I think Cream with Eric Clapton was an early, early influence. But the one other name that comes up quite a bit is Alan Holdsworth. Alan Holdsworth is somebody we will definitely be taking a closer look at in the future. Holdsworth may not be a household name on the level of Eddie Van Halen, but he's somebody that Eddie Van Halen considered a household name. Admittedly, this confused me as well, because by the time I was of the age that I was devouring guitar magazines in high school, Alan Holdsworth's sound had evolved quite a bit, and I just couldn't make the connection between him and Van Halen. Van Halen was this fun, good-time, accessible, party rock band, Alan Holdsworth's music at this point sounded like the musical equivalent of astrophysics or neuroscience. It was over my head.
Okay, you can kind of hear it with the guitar and the feel. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. However, and this is a big however, when you get into the early, early Alan Holdsworth stuff, you really hear it. Holdsworth himself was notoriously self-critical, and he regarded his early work as sounding like a quote-unquote caveman. Obviously, Holdsworth was being too hard on himself. This was the period of his music that Eddie Van Halen was inspired by. It's also incredible to think that Tony Williams had played in the 60s with uh, the Miles Davis Quintet, the last group that all Miles Davis fans can agree upon as being great, with uh, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Ron Carter. Now, the Van Halens weren't jazz aficionados, but the music that Tony Williams went on to do in the 70s was jazz rock, initially with John McLaughlin, and then a fellow British guitarist who was lesser known but equally groundbreaking, Alan Holdsworth. At some point, as Andre alluded to, the Tony Williams band came through L.A. The Van Halen brothers checked it out. And uh, despite them doing very different music, there is a serious overlap. You can really hear it. Let's check out a little bit of the Tony Williams band with Alan Holdsworth in the mid-70s, 1975, a live recording. Let's check out Van Halen a year later, live in San Bernardino. This is a bootleg. The sound quality is not as good, but you may notice a similarity. The music is very different. They're doing an extended jam on Superstition by Stevie Wonder. But uh, listen to the guitar. Isn't that incredible? It's like the energy and experimentation of Holdsworth with Tony Williams, but with some more blues and rock attitude, all played over a funky, fun, hard rocking groove. And did you notice the uh, Kreutzer violin lick that later showed up in the studio version of Eruption? And I hear other licks too that I recognize from showing up in songs on later studio albums. When you go through these old Van Halen bootlegs, and there's a bunch of them out there, you'll hear parts that just weren't assigned yet. Eddie's open solo contained parts that found their way to what would become Eruption. Other parts would become intros, mean streets, 
Women in Love, which was played earlier, Spanish Fly, the acoustic part at the beginning of our show today. So by the time the records started coming out, much of that material was already in existence. It was just a matter of arranging it and sorting through the content of which they had so much built up over years of playing backyards in Pasadena eventually clubs in Hollywood where they would get the attention of one Gene Simmons. So folks, we're at the half hour point. Time for a little bit of housekeeping. Not going to make this too long because there's so much to get to. First, I want to welcome everybody. There's been a big increase in listenership lately and I'm very grateful and I want to say welcome to all you new listeners. Welcome back, uh, folks who have been with me since we began earlier in the summer or anybody who's come on board since then. Normally, we drop an episode every couple weeks. This has been the longest gap between episodes. Thank you for bearing with me. As mentioned up front, there were a few reasons why it's taken a little longer. Uh, one reason is that I was working on a different episode and suddenly the news of Mr. Van Halen's passing came and it was a shock and uh, everything was on hold. You know, it was really one of those rare situations where it's somebody you don't know personally, but it feels like losing a relative. And the fact that this is a guitar podcast, how could I drop any other episode without it being all about Eddie. So here it is. Oh, and then there was this other thing that happened. Uh, maybe you heard about it. The U.S. presidential election. <laughs> it ended up uh, stretching for several days. The whole country was on eggshells. The whole world was on eggshells. Finally, the results were announced, leading to a whirlwind weekend of horns honking and dancing in the streets all over New York City, where I live. It just wasn't a good time to release an episode. But uh, I'm not going to get too into politics here, which I'm sure will please some people. Not that I'm shy about it. I'm sort of a poster boy, along with this odd consortium of fellow musicians. But that's mainly on Twitter. So Twitter's my main platform if you're interested in my political views, at Alex Skolnick. And last but not least, an announcement, a happy announcement. The third and final reason for the slightly longer than usual delay time between episodes has nothing to do with current events, but everything to do with the coordination and launching of a brand new partnership between Moods and Modes and Osiris Media. This is really cool news. So Osiris is a podcast network, for those who don't know, with uh, several dozen podcasts and growing, including some hosted by musicians such as Otiel Burbridge, well known for the Allman Brothers and Dad and Company, but whom I will always think of as the bassist from Aquarium Rescue Unit, one of my favorite bands of all time. Also, Eric Krasno from Soul Live, Tom Marshall, longtime fish lyricist, who is one of the founders of Osiris Network, and this other really cool podcast called Past, Present, Future Live that has uh, exclusive performance content that's done on video. And I recently did an episode of Past, Present, Future Live, yeah, which has also had uh, artists such as John Oates from Hall and Oates, Maggie Rose. Um, Rhett Miller. It's just such a cool variety of music. 
So as we speak, my episode is the most current episode of Past, Present, Future Live. Check it out. Check out the other episodes. And check out some of the other shows on the Osiris Media Network as well. Go to OsirisPod.com, O-S-I-R-I-S-P-O-D.com. And it's full of music and culture content. I guarantee you, you will find something cool and new to listen to. So I'm just really excited to have this team working with me. These are folks that specialize in tech, production, digital communications, stuff that maybe I could use a little help with. And I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to accomplish together. And it's thanks to you, the listeners. So thank you all for helping make this happen. And now let's get back to paying tribute to the one and only somebody I and many others think of as King Edward. So, you guys, I have a confession to make. I think I overprepared for this episode and created more content than will fit. We have over an hour's worth of conversation with Matt Blackett, who was a longtime editor-in-chief of Guitar Player magazine on the West Coast, and also Brad Talinsky of Guitar World magazine for a long time, and also author of numerous books including a book on Jimmy Page written with Jimmy Page and also the book Play It Loud, a book about guitar that morphed into an exhibit about guitar at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York that included some of the most cherished historic guitars of all time, such as Hendrix's Strat played at Woodstock, Clapton's The Fool from the Cream Era, Prince's favorite guitar, surprisingly cheap guitar that was with him his entire career, and uh, the guitar that started it all off for Eddie Van Halen, a guitar known as Frankenstein that he built himself. Now, the Frankenstein guitar deserves its own segment. I discussed it quite a bit with both Brad Talinsky and Matt Blackett, and I think you're really going to enjoy what these guys have to say. Both were top writers and head honchos at uh, the main guitar magazines in the United States, and uh, they've interacted with Eddie close up and personally. Matt was also involved on the product side of things at one time. You're not going to want to miss what these guys have to say, but I think it's going to wait till part two because there is so much more to share here. I want to play a few things for you guys, if that's okay. And I also want to get back to uh, the Zoom call with uh, Vernon and the gang. Now, in 1978, I was not playing guitar yet. Uh, that was still a couple years away. I was a little kid. But uh, Vernon was playing and uh, remembers the moment that Van Halen expanded beyond Southern California and finally entered the consciousness of listeners and music fans around the globe. Here again is Vernon Reed. 78. Hey. The context for Van Halen in rock and roll is like, it's like a, a moment where rock radio, you know, previous to that, say, dance music was pretty much, pre, was very dominant on the airwaves. And there were some problems, and there were, and the reactions to that, you know, there, there were some problematic reactions to that. There was the whole disco sucks scenario and you know this whole kind of these kind of promotions I the radio station in Chicago they had this promotion where they they took a bunch of disco records and piled them up and destroyed them burnt them and kept and all that happened it had become a South Soul Christmas album it become disco duck it had become a bunch of stuff you know, that was that that people were not feeling. I'm just gonna jump in here. Um, this brings to mind Something. Sometimes you have these musical backlashes 
that are overreactions. It makes me think of the movement that followed in the wake of Van Halen. Just the constant glammed up uh, commercial hard rock bands with the flashy guitar players. Now, it must be said, a few were very good, such as George Lynch or Warren Martini, but many were playing solos as a gimmick. And these bands are uh, just lacking the original substance that Van Halen had. Now, Vernon's talking about it for the disco era. You know, there was some great music that fell under the category of disco. When you think of uh, music by, say, the Commodores, the Ohio Players, Chic with Nile Rodgers, a great guitarist that would be a dream guest for Moods and Modes. So the problem is a lot of these good musicians got caught up in the overreaction against the, the cheapening of disco. Much like uh, the cheapening of rock in the days after Van Halen yeah, led to guitar solos not being cool anymore, at least in the 90s. But Van Halen first arrived in a unique time. Here's Vernon again. Also, around that this time period, people became aware of punk, right? There was this whole movement. From, from the UK, partially from the UK, partially from America, mm -hmm. you know, in reaction to things like the Yacht Rock, right? Like, right. Like yeah. So-called Yacht Rock, like the Eagles. So there right. was a reaction against that. And into that maelstrom comes this, this young, insouciant band from, you know, from California, um, that first record, Van Halen, and it was just... You know, from from that first track, "Running with the Devil," which is funny because um, Alex is part of this part of this project, uh, uh, Metal Alliance. Allegiance, and we, yeah. And we were, <laughs> and dude, <laughs> dude, like they did like I think side one of Van Halen, and you wow, know, it was cra they like just we did the whole we did it the whole so we had good to do the whole we did the whole you did the whole record. So let me explain what's going on here. I had to learn the whole first Van Halen record. And um, it was a labor of love. But um, Vernon and the Living Color guys were so complimentary. They even did a shout out about it um, during their set when uh, introducing me to sit in with them, which was just really humbling and overwhelming. Um, this was on the Shiprocked Cruise. But I was there with uh, the band Metal Allegiance, which was uh, at that time a brand new all-star cover band that kind of gathers whoever's around. Um, Corey from Living Color came up and sang backups with us on the Van Halen stuff. And uh, Troy Sanders from Mastodon. And, you know, just a really cool combination of folks. And, of course, I should mention um, Wolfgang Van Halen, son of Eddie Van Halen, bassist of Van Halen at this time, but also the bassist for Tremonti. So he was on this cruise with uh, Mark Tremonti. So he came up and played the first few songs with us. And a uh, little bit of pressure to play uh, songs from the first Van Halen record. You're playing Eddie Van Halen and uh, Wolfgang Van Halen is playing bass. <laughs> but uh, he was super cool. Uh, seemed genuinely appreciative. I was just on this high from the whole experience. Uh, I didn't even take it in until later because I was in such a zone of concentration. Now, the timing of this is really interesting because it was about a year after first playing Eruption at the Cornelia Street Cafe in Greenwich Village for that series, Make Music Monthly, my impetus to learn how to play Eruption properly. If you asked me, sure, I could play some of the licks, 
But performing it in front of an audience, especially when you're hired to demonstrate it in front of a crowd that includes music scholars and serious musicians, that's a whole other thing. And uh, that was in May of 2014. So by late summer 2014, I found myself on another music cruise, this one hosted by Motorhead. Sadly, this would turn out to be one of the last performances of Motorhead's iconic frontman, Lemmy. May he rest in peace. This was also the first performance of what would become Metal Allegiance, which was actually booked as a replacement act for Megadeth after Megadeth frontman Dave Mustaine was unable to make it. So long story short, we decided uh, for one of my songs, uh, Running with the Devil by Van Halen. And uh, we were rehearsing it backstage, and we got through it. And just then the drummer, whose name is Mike Portnoy, a name I'm sure some of you know, as a joke, he <laughs> he went into uh, eruption, which starts with uh, Alex Van Halen drum fills. So, of course, I played it, and it was still fresh. It hadn't been that long since I performed it in front of an audience in New York. And uh, by the time I finished, there was a crowd gathered around of other musicians. I saw Scott Ian and Charlie from Anthrax and others, and everybody looked shocked. Uh, and they said, you have to play that tonight on stage. So I played it at the uh, motorboat cruise and uh, would go on to play it at the NAMM show and some other gigs. And this is what eventually led to us doing the entire first Van Halen record on the Shiprocked cruise with guests including guys from Living Color, Mastodon, and Wolfgang Van Halen himself. Now, I had learned bits and pieces of the first Van Halen record, but never the whole thing top to bottom. And I came away with some really interesting observations. Now, I'd already been planning to share some of these observations. An episode in tribute to Eddie Van Halen was already on the agenda. I was looking forward to unpacking Eddie's playing with a particular focus on the first album. I'm sorry it has to be under these circumstances, but I'd like to share some of these observations with you right now. What's the first thing you notice about that? What makes it so unique? Well, there's a distinct sound, and obviously I don't have his sound. I'm not even playing through a wall of amplifiers. That's a digital amplifier called a Kemper that's running direct. There's not even a speaker. Yet it works. It's at least recognizable. It's a ballpark Van Halen sound. But when Eddie came up with this sound, nobody had it. Even if you bought an industry standard amp, like a Marshall, and created a wall of these amps, well, you wouldn't have a tone that works for Van Halen. It might work for Foghat or the Doobie Brothers. So the industry had to catch up to him. One of the reasons we're able to have sounds like this now is because of Eddie. Now, he's mentioned Tony Iommi and Black Sabbath as a tone influence, which makes sense as far as the crunch. And he combined that with a distinct use of pitch effects pedals. On subsequent albums, there'd be more and more use of the flange, a good example being uh, And the Cradle Will Rock. But on the debut Van Halen album, there's liberal use of the MXR Phase 90. I'm not sure where he got the idea to use this. I sometimes wonder if he may have heard Tom Schultz of Boston. That sound blended with the thick crunch of Tony Iommi with Black Sabbath. Seems like it may have been a possible blueprint for Eddie, but who knows. So besides the distinct tone, there is something else really unique about the riff I played. This. This. 
Let's hear it again. Now, that's something that tended to be avoided. You know, usually those would be edited out. Eddie made it part of the music. It becomes this percussive effect. It's simply a slide down the strings. Sometimes with a pick scrape. Or sometimes just in between the riffs. By the way, you may hear me pumping the low E string. That's not actually part of the riff. I'm just alluding to the bass line from the song to help keep a pulse. Now let's look at one more riff that makes use of the slide. This is later on the album, the song Little Dreamer, which is the closest thing Van Halen had to a slow song. It's interesting because so many hard rock bands got defined by the power ballad. You know, Def Leppard came out a few years later with songs like Bringing on the Heartbreak. Scorpions had so many power ballads. Van Halen never really had one, but this was their closest thing to a slow one. Check out the slide. So you hear how the slide connects the high riff and the low riff. Van Halen's riffs are full of slides, scratches, little fills, things that producers would discourage. I mean, think about some of the big rock records around this time, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, you know, Eagles, Steely Dan, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I wouldn't want to hear that any other way. That's part of the beauty is that it was so clean and polished. But Eddie took what others were avoiding pick noise, slides, squeals, screeches, and spun it into gold. So while it's his solos that he'll understandably be most remembered for, there is no shortage of rhythm guitar specialists and riff masters who will tell you that among the finest rhythm players ever is Mr. Van Halen. Another great innovation of Eddie Van Halen was harmonics. Now, for the non-guitarists and non-musicians, harmonics are these chime-like sounds On the guitar, the strongest ones are found on the 5th, 7th, and 12th fret of the guitar. Uh, Here's an example. So Eddie Van Halen would do these licks. He would just throw them in there. One example is in between the vocal lines in the verse of Running With The Devil. Now, I'd never heard anybody do this before Eddie. And he does similar licks all over the first couple of Van Halen records, but they always sound fresh. One of my favorites is on Van Halen 2 towards the end of the solo in the song Somebody Get Me a Doctor. I have no shame admitting I once borrowed that for one of my own parts. Here's what I did. I took the last four notes of the harmonics from Eddie's lick right here. And I just thought, what would happen if I play that lick backwards? And it ended up being part of a song called Electric Crown. The lick goes like this. So now you know. Sometimes you just have to remember that old saying that goes something like this. Good artists borrow. Great artists steal. Now, here's another lick involving harmonics. This one's a little bit overlooked, probably because it's in a song without a guitar solo. And it's really a song for radio. It's probably their biggest hit before Jump. 
And I'm talking about Dance the Night Away from Van Halen 2. But it has this really cool breakdown that just happens for a few bars. Check this out. Now, it's hard to get the tuning right at that part of the neck. I was fretting about it, no pun intended, and um, trying to get it right. And then I listened to the original, and it's really not in tune. (laughs) I don't know if that would be acceptable today, but uh, it's interesting. Anyway, it's a great part, and it's done by tapping 12 frets above where the left hand is playing using the right hand and tapping out harmonics. He does a very similar thing with similar chords, but unaccompanied for the intro to a song on the same album, Women in Love, which we played a very quick sample of earlier. Now, that's the only two-handed technique I want to talk about here. There's just been so much attention focused on that, and there's no shortage of information on those licks and how to play them. So in our remaining time for this episode, let's look at a few more licks that tend not to be talked about as much as the two-handed stuff. This next one is um, returning to the first Van Halen album, and it actually begins with an eruption-style two-handed lick, but just really quick. It's the part that follows that I want to focus on. So check it out. This is a very quick section from the solo of You Really Got Me. Now, this represents one of my favorite components of Eddie Van Halen, the super high-energy bend. This is yet another technique where, on the one hand, you could say that Eddie may not have been the first to do this, but on the other hand, nobody had ever done it quite like him. This technique is sometimes described as overbending. Other examples include Jimmy Page and Whole Lot of Love. David Gilmore and Another Brick in the Wall. But Eddie did it in such a way that I'd never heard anybody else do it, and I really haven't heard anybody do it since. Um, Here's what it is. Now, I don't want to lose the non-guitar players, so stick with me this moment. Guitar players, um, if you have your guitar, take the first string, go to the 17th fret. That'll give you an A, Technically, it's an A-flat, but let's think of it as an A. Visually, it makes more sense. Right, so that's the root. And if you were to play a what I think of as a Chuck Berry lick, right, just bending into that A on the second string, three frets higher, right, we've all heard that lick. That's a chest, an old chestnut, you might say. Right Now, what Eddie did, which was so cool, was he took that bend that we would normally do on the uh, 20th fret. And he stayed in position and kept the first string note, but moved the bend up a half step, which is unheard of as far as I know. So instead of this, the normal way, he got this. 
And that might not work for everybody, but with his tone, placement, and energy, it's very special. Now, on the same album, there is a track called Feel Your Love Tonight. Most of you probably know it. Check out the solo on that. A few bars in, he does something very similar. Eddie was brilliant at reusing the same licks, but in such a way that you'd never know unless you dove in and transcribed them. This was one of those discoveries I made when I was transcribing the first record. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, that's the same thing he does here. Another example of that is the ending of You Really Got Me, which begins with this hyper-fast blues lick. But when you dissect it, you find this is like his standard lick, and he puts it in different places, always making it work. Now, you kind of need a live band to really pull this off, but I'm just going to lay down a chord for myself and play an approximation of the lick. All right, I'm all alone here. Just work with me. So slowed down, this is what that lick is. All right, and if I play that a little faster. And then combined with other notes and bends. It starts to sound a little bit like Van Halen. And I have found this lick all over the Van Halen catalog. Yet he does it in such a way, it never sounds like he's repeating himself. It's so brilliant. And there are quite a few parts like this, parts that you might not recognize as ones you may have heard in other songs because they're reconfigured in such a cool way. And I want to look at one more example before we wrap up. We're already over an hour, but this is for Eddie. And uh, the song I want to look at is one of my favorite Van Halen songs. If I have to pick just one, it's probably this one. And it's called I'm the One, coincidentally. And I'm pretty sure we'll visit this tune in part two because this has everything. Uh, I'm the One is sort of like the kitchen sink of Eddie's licks. It's got great blues licks, harmonics, two-handed tapping, great patterns. But I want to focus on one lick in particular. So here's a very brief section of me playing the tune. Just a little tease for now, but I want to focus on that last lick. So it's on the fifth string, 14th fret, and it's just this. It's a half step and then a whole step. Right now, it could be part of a scale, say uh, the G major scale. Right, notes three, four, and five, or technically F sharp major because the guitar is tuned down a half step. Right, so it's just that. And if you move that exact pattern onto the next string and the next, that's what Eddie's doing. He's just taking this fragment of a scale and moving it across the strings. And he does this all the time, very effectively. Okay, so it shows up elsewhere in I'm the One, such as the uh, the first solo, which is in B. The chorus, where he does a fill similar to the intro fill. Uh, 
It's such a great lick, yet it defies music theory. It's uh, just like that quote from Eddie in the beginning. There are no rules. I should mention the solo from On Fire. It's all that pattern. Fast forward to 1984, Van Halen's biggest hit, Jump, end of solo. It's the exact same pattern. And on that note, let's wrap up Episode 7, Eddie Van Halen, Part 1. Well, folks, as I mentioned earlier, this was a really tough episode to start. A few weeks back, we did an episode in tribute to Peter Green right after he passed. Peter Green was somebody I greatly appreciated, but you wouldn't say I had a close relationship with his playing. Eddie Van Halen, on the other hand, is somebody whose playing I'd spent so much time with. That's why it felt like losing a friend. And I have to be careful because I get emotional just thinking about it. Anyway, it's been really cathartic to share thoughts on Eddie with all of you, so thank you, and thank you for listening. Big thanks to Vernon Reed for being part of this, and Andre Cholmondley for coordinating and moderating. Everybody added a lot, but it was two hours long, too long to share here. But you can check out the whole thing at Andre's website, which has links, uh, guitartour.net. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. And as of this episode, it is done in association and presented by Osiris Media, with hands-on coordination by Kirsten Cluthy, Brad Stratton, Adam Kaplan, and Nick Sejas. All the trio music used here included Mad Zabrowski on drums, who composed the first piece, and Nathan Peck on bass. I also want to thank my friend Frankie Felita, who has built guitars as a hobbyist, but built the most incredible replica of Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein, and that's what I was using on this episode. He's planning to build more. I'll keep you posted. Finally, a special thanks to all our Patreon members. If you'd like to support this podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex You guys make it all possible. Thank you once again. I'll see you really soon with Eddie Van Halen Part 2. Take care and be safe. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.